again, welcome church. Thank you. It's always good and it's always a privilege and an honor to be here, to be worshipping you all, to be worshipping you with you all. And of course, here on Christmas Eve, it is also an extra special time for us as well, mm -hmm. celebrating the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, probably one of the most well-known Christmas stories ever written was by Charles Dickens in 1843. And of course, we know it is the Christmas Carol. Now, this is a story of an elderly, uh, greedy man named Ebenezer Scrooge, who was visited by the ghost of his former business partner, Jacob Marley, and the spirits of Christmas past, present, and yet to come. Now, of course, as we know very well, the story starts on a bleak, cold Christmas Eve in London, where Scrooge, who dislikes Christmas, turns down a dinner invitation from his nephew, Fred. He also turns away two men who were looking for money for a charity so that they could provide heating and food for the poor. Now Scrooge is visited by Marley's ghost who wanders the earth locked up in chains due to his lifetime of greed and selfishness. And he tells Scrooge that he will be visited by three spirits and warns him that if he does not change his ways that he too will suffer the same fate. But now after the visitation by the three spirits, we see Scrooge wake up on Christmas Day a changed man. He makes a large donation to charity and gives his underpaid clerk, Bob Cratchit, a pay rise and a turkey for Christmas. And Scrooge continues then to demonstrate the spirit of Christmas by being kind, generous and compassionate to all. Now if you ask any author or writer for any story to be told, you need a few basic elements. Firstly, you need a premise for the story, which sets up the circumstances, the location, and of course the characters, that gives the reader some sort of background information regarding the story. Next, you get the plot, which is the chronological sequence of events that really makes up the action of the story. Often, there is some sort of conflict going on, which occurs, and then you see tension that builds up to a climax. And following this, you'll often see some sort of resolution taking place, where everything seems right with the world again. And the third thing is, and most importantly, is the characters of the story, and the development of the characters in the story. And finally, you'll get the theme of the story, whereby the reader makes some sort of connections or conclusions from the story itself. Essentially, it is the take-home message of the story. Now, of course, it is possible to read a story and miss the entire point. Sometimes, you may read a few paragraphs, or you skip around a little bit, or perhaps you focus too much on the scenery or some of the minor characters of the story. But you may miss the entire point. You may miss the hero of the story and, of course, the major theme of the story. And yet, at New Life Church, we believe the Bible to be the divine-inspired story. It is the inspired, inherent Word of God. It is completely reliable and it is completely true 
because it is authored by an infallible God. Now we know the Bible contains 66 books written by more than 40 authors over a time span of more than 1600 years. But yet it fits together perfectly as if it was written by one author. Now it is possible to read and study the Bible for many, many years and to miss the entire point. It is possible to read and use the scriptures incorrectly and to fail to see the bigger picture. To approach God's word as separate, independent stories and to use it as a cookbook of recipes or as an encyclopedia of knowledge for our daily problems. And not to apply it to our daily lives. Because Jesus said in the scriptures in John chapter 5, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, the Bible is all about Jesus. He's the point and the hero of the story. From Genesis to Revelation, it is all about Jesus. Jesus unlocks the Bible, and if you read the scriptures carefully, you'll find him in the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of the story. And unless you understand this, you will never grasp the full intent of the scriptures. Now, biblical theology helps us to understand God's amazing story of redemption that centers on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And through the Bible, God has revealed His King, the King's purposes, the King's plan, and of course, the King's promises as well. So in the past few weeks, we have been going through the birth of Jesus, the Incarnation. And as Pastor Gareth has told us and explained to us in his previous messages, that the story and the birth of Jesus is a true story. It is set in a real place, in a real time, and is about a real birth. It is not some made-up fantasy tale or fable that is set in a land far, far, far away. No, it is a story that was foretold by the prophets many centuries before the birth of Christ. So this Christmas Eve, we'll be looking in the Old Testament. We'll dive into the book of Messiah because he like many of the other prophets, foretold the birth of the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. And we'll be starting in chapter 8, verse 19, so that we can put some sort of context into it, of what Isaiah is trying to tell the reader. And of course we know that text without context is pretext, that it doesn't make any sense. So let's read the scriptures together. Isaiah chapter 8, starting from verse 19, going through to chapter 9, verses 7. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged 
and will speak contentiously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now take note from chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every brute of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you for this blessed day that we have, Lord. We thank you that on this day we can celebrate the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And Father, as we look and delve into your word today, Lord, we pray for your help, Lord. We pray for your Holy Spirit, Lord, to enlighten the scriptures for us, Lord, so that we read will be accurate and true, Lord. May we never look into the scriptures what is not there, Father. So, Father, we ask for your help this morning, Lord. And, Lord, we just pray that we may hear your word, Lord, and that our lives will be transformed, Lord, that we may not just use it as a cookbook of recipes, Lord, or as an encyclopedia for knowledge, Lord, that it may penetrate our hearts, Lord, so that we may be transformed, Father. And may the words of my mouth, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my Lord, my Rock, and my Redeemer. Amen. Amen. So, this is a very difficult passage to unpack, as the ancient translations vary widely, and the modern commentators sort of disagree on the historical context, but in order to understand this, we do need to put some context into it. Now, obviously, we know that Isaiah is the author of this book, and his name literally means the Lord is salvation. See, Isaiah served as God's representative to Judah for more than 50 years, around 740 to 686 BC, roughly 100 years before the other three major prophets' writings, which was Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And like the other prophets, Isaiah's ministry blends foretelling, which is a prophet seeing far into the future, and 
fourth talent, which is preaching the truth to a sinful nature. Now Isaiah was the son of Amos, and he served or ministered as a prophet to four different kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now he was married to a prophetess, and he had two sons. Now during Uzziah's 52-year reign, we see that Judah became prosperous and developed into a very strong commercial and military state. It was a port of commerce on the Red Sea with the construction of walls, towers, and forts. However, because of their prosperity, Judah's spiritual health declined. Because we witnessed the downfall of Uzziah as he attempted to assume the privileges of a priest by burning incense at the altar. And as a result, he was judged. And he never recovered. He was judged, he had leprosy, and he never recovered. Now, Uzziah's son, Jotham, took over his reign, approximately 750 to 731 BC. But during this time, Assyria emerged as the new superpower. Now, Judah also began to get some opposition from the north, from Israel, and from Syria. But after Jotham, we see Ahaz began to reign in Judah. And by this time, Israel and Syria formed an alliance to combat Assyria. But of course, Ahaz refused Judah into it. And as a result, war erupted. And because Ahaz refused, he requested help from the Assyrian king, who helped by sacking Gaza and by taking over Damascus. However, this led then to the introduction of the heathen altars, which then were set up in Solomon's temple. Now, it is important to note that although the political scene was a bit different from that of the northern kingdom of Israel, that the sins of the people were very similar. There was idol worship, there was oppression and marginalization of the poor for personal gain, and there were business practices that contradicted uh, God's law. So Isaiah, he condemned the empty ritualism of idolatry of the day. He prophesied to a nation that turned a deaf ear on the Lord. Because instead of serving with humility and offering love to their neighbors, the nation of Judah offered meaningless sacrifices to God in the temple of Jerusalem. And they committed injustices throughout the nation. The people of Judah turned their backs on God and alienated themselves from Him. Thus Isaiah pronounced judgment on the Israelites in the hope that God's chosen people would return back to Him. So in our first part of our passage today, we observe how far the Israelites have fallen. We witness, which is my first point, the darkness of the world. And this is Isaiah chapter 8, 19 to 22. You see, the Israelites failed to wait for the Lord. They failed to trust the Lord. But this was not the case for Isaiah. Because in chapter 8, verse 17, Isaiah writes this. He says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. However, we see that the Israelites were not willing to wait upon the Lord. They were consulting with spiritualists in order to communicate with the dead. Just like King Saul did when he consulted the medium of Endor, as we read in 1 Samuel chapter 28. 
Now these conjurers had very strange signs and voices where Isaiah describes them as chirping and muttering. Now these words may refer to their tones or their manner in which they spoke. They delivered, which was to say like a very low, hollow, broken sound. And it didn't make any sense at all. They did not speak with any boldness or plainness like the prophets or the lords spoke with. And their desire was to entertain people rather to instruct them. And of course we know from the scriptures that the Mosaic law prohibited such mediums and necromancers who consulted with the spirits of the dead. Because Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 18, he said, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. You see, the Lord detested this because He wanted the Israelites to be blameless before Him. He drove out the nations for the Israelites of these nations who were practicing such evil things. Yet, we see the Israelites do the very thing that God told them not to do. I mean, they had the prophets guiding and directing them, like a light in darkness. They had the law of Moses showing them, guiding them, and directing them. Yet, they still chose to disobey the Lord. So we see Isaiah asked them a question. He says this, Should not her people, who are guilty and who are in trouble, look to God for forgiveness and peace? Should not a people who are in doubt, in want, and in danger seek God for direction and protection? Surely, since the Lord is our God and we are His people, it is certainly our duty to seek Him, says Isaiah. I mean, what could be more absurd than to look for answers and guidance in images for life and for living comforts? The dead do not know anything, or cannot even respond. It is ridiculous to see that the living to chase after them, or expect any relief from them. Now what was the result of their disobedience? Well, we see Isaiah here paints a dismal picture. A picture of distress, anguish, doom, and gloom. They were a people who were frustrated and angry even to the point of cursing God, all because they refused to accept the truthfulness of what Isaiah had predicted, where he said that the future would experience great hardships because they failed to listen to what God said. They failed to trust and obey God. So what can we learn or take from this portion of Scripture? While well, we see the sinfulness of the Israelites, we witness their sinful behavior. And Paul Tripp, in his book, Instruments for the Redeemer's Hands, tells us this about sin. He writes this, Sin is the ultimate disease, the grand psychosis. You cannot escape it or defeat it on your own. Look around you and you will see its mark everywhere. Sin complicates what is already complicated. Life in a fallen world is more obvious 
than God ever intended. Yet, our sin makes it worse. We deal with much more than suffering, disease, disappointment, and death. Our deepest problem is not experiential, biological, or relational. It is moral, and it alters everything. It distorts our identity, it alters our perspective, it derails our behavior, and it kidnaps our hope. So here we see the condition of the Israelites' hearts. We see that they had idols in their hearts. We see their arrogant pride and self-sufficiency as they deny the authority of God and His majesty. Instead of worshipping the Creator, they were worshipping created things. And instead of appreciating the uniqueness of God, they put themselves and their trust in their own resources, in foreign gods. Because later in chapter 29, Isaiah writes this, he says, These people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their worship is of a human commandment learned by rote. Now, of course, we know that this stemmed from three things. This stemmed from their wealth, from their military might, and from their idolatry. They pursued the wealth at the expense of the poor and the marginalized. And instead of humbling themselves and relying on the might and the power of God, they chose to rely on the work of their own hands and on their idols. And they even went as far as consulting the dead to seek answers to their problems. Now you may be sitting there and thinking, well, I don't summon the dead using Ouija boards or other things and I don't consult the dead regarding my problems. But Isaiah definitely condemns the worship of idols and false gods. Now also you may be thinking, well, I don't consult any idols, I don't do any idol worship. But let me remind you of what we've learned from our studies in Psalm, where I mentioned Tim, Tim Keller, his book on counterfeit gods. Tim Keller says this about an idol. He defines an idol as anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your imagination and your heart more than God. And anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. So this Christmas, I urge you to examine your hearts. Examine yourselves. Ask yourself, what or who is ruling your heart? Is God ruling your heart? Or is some idol ruling your heart? Or is there some idol that is preventing you from having a deep personal relationship with our Heavenly Father? And who do you rely on in times of trials and tribulations? Do you run to the Heavenly Father to seek advice, wisdom and counsel? Or do you rely on yourself, your abilities, your job, your money, your bank account, your spouse, your parents or even your children? And when times do really get tough, do you turn to the comforts of this world? Do you look for drugs, sex, alcohol, pornography? It's a whole list of things. Is there any particular sin that you need to be repenting of today? You see, we know that sin is more than just making a mistake or an error. It is a flaw in our character and it produces rebellion. It produces foolishness in the way that we think that we know better. It distorts our reality and we will never be able to know what God has ordained for us to do if we continue 
to revel in our sin. Now Isaiah warns the Israelites that their sin would not go unpunished. He warns them that human pride and boasting are utter foolishness and that the people were in great danger before a righteous and a holy God, that there would be judgment as the sovereign Lord, he was watching and he is watching. God is concerned about holiness, about righteousness and about justice, which leads him to judge the Israelites. And like the Israelites, we too will be judged for our sin. We need to heed these warnings and pay attention to what Isaiah is writing here. But, as I started in verse chapter 9, verse 1, of course, the story doesn't end there. And thank God it doesn't. Because that is the bad news. But now we see the good news. We see Isaiah prophesy about the Messiah, the glorious coming King. And this is eight centuries before the actual event took place. But notice the language that he uses here. He prophesied as if it has happened already. You see, brothers and sisters, this is prophetic language. A prophet was a seer and a visionary. He received the revelation from God and recorded it as such. And as far as Isaiah was concerned, God had shown him, and therefore it was as good as done. It was certain to happen, no doubt about it. And in this section, my second point, we see the anticipated light of the Messiah. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. And notice, it begins the chapter with the word, but, or nevertheless, in other translations. Now this, as we know, is important and we need to take note because it is a conjunction word that connects the two passages together. It begins with the announcement that there is going to be a change. And notice that there is a contrast of imagery used here. Isaiah uses poetic language as he contrasts the darkness and the light. And of course we know in scripture, darkness is synonymous with adversity, with despair, with gloom and doom and evil. And light signifies prosperity, peace and joy. And Isaiah then says that there will be no more gloom for those who are in anguish. He refers yeah, to Zebulun and to Naphtali, places that were on the northern border, west of the Jordan River. Now these were the first people to suffer from the invasion of the Assyrian king, which marked the beginning of the dark days for Israel. And as the people of God, the Israelites, as we know, were under God's discipline. But Isaiah sees that this tragic event, as if it has already happened in the past, as he writes, in the former time. However, in the future, God will transform this doom into honor, where the people of God will finally experience the glorious future of, the, of prophesied through the triumph of the Messiah. And now notice also that Isaiah mentions the region of Galilee. And we know that Galilee plays an important role in the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, the New Testament applies this honor of Galilee at the time of Jesus. And Jesus mentions this portion of scripture in Isaiah in Matthew chapter 4 from verses 12 to 16. This is, we know, when Jesus resisted the temptation of the devil. 
he withdrew to Galilee for, after leaving Nazareth. And what did he do? He began to preach. He began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So Isaiah shows that the coming of the Messiah is associated with the coming of light. Where light will remove the darkness of captivity. And those that were living in darkness or in their sin would see a marvelous light. And this is the surprising joy of sinners. And it's only made possible through the grace of God. And in the chapters that follow, Isaiah again uh, writes this. He prophesies about the God's chosen servant. He writes in Isaiah 42. He says, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives birth, breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And again in 58, chapter 58, Isaiah writes, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear God. Now what happens when the light comes? Well, we see that the nations will be enlarged. That their borders will be expanded. And the Lord confirms His covenant with Abraham. That His descendants will be as vast as the sand on the seashore. And we also witness that the light not only dispels the darkness, but brings with it great joy and prosperity. Because of God's power, the people will experience a time of great joy, of peace and security. Now, we do not, he doesn't say when this will happen, but he writes as if it has happened already. And of course, we know through the Gospels, that as Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, his teachings and his miracles were evidence that he indeed was the Messiah. He proclaimed the kingdom of God through salvation, and that whoever believed in him were not lost in doom or gloom or anguish, but they were to look forward to a kingdom of heaven where there will be great joy, great peace, and great prosperity. Now, Isaiah also describes this joy as being abundant, like at a time of harvest or at the dividing of a plunder. Of course, we know that harvest time in Israel was a very important time. It was at a time of much joy, a time of much celebration. It was a time where people would gather together to eat, drink, and celebrate the fruits of their labor. But of course, joy not only comes from their labor, but also comes from the ending of wars, where Isaiah here foresees a time when the Lord will free Israel from the bondage of Assyria, from the bondage of Babylon, and any other superpower that oppressed her. He draws an analogy at a time when Israel had an improbable victory over Midian, when Gideon defeated the Midianites by the power of the Lord, which we learned in our study on the book of Judges. However, this time 
the victory will be much greater as the implements of the war used will be burnt up. There will be no need for any accessories of war. This will not just be a temporary ceasing of war, but it will be a permanent one. This will be a time when war will end permanently. A time of universal peace. And how is this possible? Well, this is possible through the peace of the Messiah, which we see in verses 6 to 7. My third point. Here, Isaiah really introduces us to the one who will transform the doom and the gloom and the anguish into much joy and much peace. Because he explains the character and the nature of the Messiah here. And he starts off by saying, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And Isaiah is very precise here. He refers to a child and a son. And he's already prophesied in chapter 7. Because chapter 7 verses 14 he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And notice Isaiah presents a child as if it has happened or already is happening. And we witness what the expectations of this child is, that the government will be on his shoulders, that he will rule the nations of the world. Of the world. And this fulfills what the psalmist said in Psalm 2 verses 7 to 9. The psalmist expresses this. He says, I will tell of the degree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And notice, who is the child given to? Well, the child is given to us, to the world, to sinners like you and to me. And brothers and sisters, this is a gift of divine grace to sinners. Please don't miss this. You cannot miss this. This is powerful words coming from Isaiah. As sinners, we are no way worthy of this. We are no way worthy of the divine grace that comes from a holy and a righteous God. And thank God that it is. Because if it was left to us, we would fail. Just like Adam and Eve failed in the garden. And Isaiah goes on to give incredible descriptive words that displays the nature and the character of the Son. He describes uh, the Messiah as the wonderful counselor, as the mighty God, as the everlasting Father, as the Prince of Peace. Well, Jesus is a wonderful counselor. And a counselor is someone who plans, who is able to give wise guidance and direction. And of course, we know that the Messiah had supernatural wisdom, as he ruled with wisdom beyond any human capabilities. It was certainly in contrast to any king that ever ruled the earth. And we know from the New Testament that Jesus' teachings and his judgment make him a wonderful counselor. He's described as a mighty God, a title that is given to the Lord. He will be like a mighty warrior who that will be able to accomplish the military exploits that is mentioned in verses 3 to 5, so that peace will reign. And Isaiah uses the word God to indicate his deity. 
And of course we know from the New Testament that Jesus makes these claims about himself to the Jews as he identifies himself in John chapter 8 as the great I am. And in Matthew chapter 24, he announces that he has great power and great glory. And this shows that Jesus is the Almighty God. And he also describes him as the everlasting Father. Now this is a really interesting description used by Isaiah for the Messiah. Because in the Old Testament, the Messiah or the King was referred to as the Son and not the Father. And according to the Davidic covenant, that God would be the Father to the King and the King would be the Son. So yeah, Isaiah refers to the Messiah as the Father. And although it may sound a little bit confusing, we know that Jesus himself in the New Testament refers to himself as the Father because he says in John chapter 5, I come in my Father's name. And again in John chapter 10 he says, I and the Father are one. So by using these terms of the Father, it indicates that the Messiah is kind and compassionate protector, like a father is to his children, like God is to his people. He would compassionately care for his children, and then he would discipline them. And this, of course, will be forever. Not temporary, like the previous kings who ruled the earth. And finally, he refers to the Messiah as the Prince of Peace. That he will bring peace, or shalom, to the nations. As they will rely on his just judgments and his decision making. The Messiah will ensure that the people will have blessings or peace. And finally, Isaiah concludes that the virgin son will be the rightful heir to David's throne. And he will inherit the promises of the Davidic covenant. According to the Davidic covenant, the term son is the, is the title of a king. His rule will last forever. And he will reign with justice and with righteousness. And this will be accomplished by the Lord God Almighty. So of course now, what sort of conclusions as we wrap this up? What can we really learn from this passage? Well firstly we see Isaiah warns the Israelites to change their ways. That they will be judged for living in darkness. But he's also reminding them, them that God is not abandoning them. That despite the threat of war and invasion, that they are to expect a glorious future ahead. So for those unbelievers that might be sitting here listening to the message today, for those who have not come to the throne of grace and repented of their sins, is there any particular sin that you may be struggling with today? Like the Israelites that are living in darkness and was avoiding the light, are there any idols that you may be worshipping. Now remember, as I said, any, an idol is anything that you value more than God himself. And Isaiah is pointing us to the light. He's pointing us here to Jesus Christ. You need to come into the light. I recall Pastor Matthew mentioned to us once, the best thing that could ever happen to you is if you get exposed to the light. Now this may sound harsh or cruel, but... In order for you to experience the peace of Christ, you need to come into the light. In order to experience the grace of God, you need to come into the light. The Apostle John wrote in his epistles, he wrote this in 1 John chapter 1. He said, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. 
If we say we have fellowship with Him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So friends, remember, it's never too late. Perhaps you may be sitting here thinking, well, Robert, Pastor Garrett, you don't know what I've done. You just don't understand. Well, we may not understand, but trust me, Jesus Christ understands. He is our advocate before our holy and our righteous God. No one, no one is out of reach of our powerful, mighty God. So this Christmas, please, I want you to experience true, true grace. If you don't know, please come and speak to Pastor Garrett or one of the elders. We'll be happy to help you. And I just want to remind you of what Paul writes in the, the church to Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace of kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And for those of us who do believe in Christ, perhaps this has been a really difficult year. Perhaps you've really struggled this year. And maybe you felt that God has been silent. And maybe you've been tempted to stop trusting in the Lord and to start trusting in idols. You have been struggling with perhaps reading the scriptures or speaking to God or having a personal relationship with God or struggling in your personal time. You may even feel like giving up. But now remember Isaiah encourages the people of Israel to keep the faith, not to put their trust in idols. Now remember brothers and sisters, God's timing is perfect. It is never too late. It is never too early. It is perfect. You are where you are meant to be. The Lord is control and He is sovereign over the future. You do not need to consult any mediums regarding your future. Remain totally dependent on God and keep trusting Him. For the psalmist wrote in Psalm 135, The Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. If things are not working out the way that you want them to be, God's timing is perfect. Trust in Him. For Peter also reminds us, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Now I started by telling you about Ebenezer Scrooge, who woke up on Christmas Day a changed man. Now change is possible, but true heart change, true transformation of the heart is only possible through the power of Christ. And where do we find Him? We find Him in the Scriptures. He is at the beginning, He's in the middle, and He's at the end of the story. So for 2022, I challenge you to read your Bible. Learn to love it. Learn to live it out. Read, God's one, read about God's wonderful gift to the world. His Son, Jesus Christ, who died so that we may be able to live in His eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to praise you and honor you for your scriptures, Lord, for your word, Lord. We want to thank you for what Isaiah 
has written in your word, Lord. And Lord, we just pray that as we go about our lives, Lord, that we may be truly transformed by these scriptures, Lord, that we may learn to love your word, Lord, that we may learn to love your word, Father. And we just ask this in your Son's precious and holy name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.